And welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about character advancement in the Sword and Sorcery game, as well as take some calls from Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast and John. So buckle up. When we look at our at our RPGs and we look at what is the reward system, which is what we're going to talk about here a little bit, we have to think that if a player wants to advance in the game and wants to achieve uh, we'll call it a win state, right? They want to gain more levels. They want to gain more power. They want to move forward in the game in the way that the game is designed to move forward. At least most games I play, you're looking for positive uh, positive motivations, right? So it might be gaining levels. It might be gaining experience or skill points that you can add them to make a character stronger and better, faster. We have the technology, that kind of stuff that is going to lead to a certain playstyle. If, for instance, you award, like I do in the OD&D Chainmail Combo, experience points for, primarily for treasure recovery, and not so much for slaying of monsters or defeating monsters, then in theory, your players realizing that will say, well, you know what? I can get 300 experience points for killing this ogre, or I can get 5,000 experience points for getting its treasure. I mean, I could do both, obviously, but do I want to risk my life for the additional 300 experience points? And that becomes a character choice. And in a lot of situations, a character will, a player will choose to try to avoid combat with the ogre and get as much of the ogre's treasure as possible without risking their lives. Thus, even though they're not always played that way clearly, Seemingly more deadly OSR games really aren't if players are playing them based on the way the game is designed. That is, recovering treasure, not killing monsters. Now, in, let's say, 5th edition D&D, where there's no experience points, you know, by the book for treasure, there is experience points for defeating monsters, which most people read as killing monsters, which then means that people are going to be much more likely to engage in combat. Now, of course, the game understands that and has added many, many uh, situational healing uh, opportunities, short rests, long rests, as well as spells, uh, healing potions being readily available, because they understand that somebody playing this game is going to be involving themselves in a lot of combat. Does that mean that you can't play a fully roleplay, no combat D&D 5e game? Of course you can. And you could go around just fighting monsters in OD&D. It's not like you can't do these things. But if people want to engage with the game the way it's written and gain the you know the experience points as written, they will do the thing the game has set forth. This is why we see a lot of people using the milestone XP uh, optional rule, as it would be, uh, in 5th edition because their tables don't want to just run around slaying monsters. Me personally, when I was running my three-year 5th edition game, when we started, like lower levels, I was doing it by the book, fighting monsters. And then once they reached a certain level, I just realized that it was silly to just constantly have them fighting stuff so they could level up, in my mind anyways. You know, these are high-level characters with a mission to save the world. They're not going to run around fighting everything in, in the world to, just to gain experience points, right? So I switched to milestones at that point. And... That all worked out well. You know, I don't think that uh, anybody, I know for a fact nobody had a problem with it. Everything worked out. But again, I'm adjusting the 
reward system to favor the thing that now, in this case, me as a DM and really the table, what they want to do in a game, right? They want to be diplomats. They want to do this, you know, travel and exploration. And there's no experience points in that if you're going by the base idea of defeating monsters. Let's talk about sword and sorcery uh, mixed with chainmail, you know, versus OD&D mixed. In a sword and sorcery game, what I what I want and what I think is should be the goal for the players, so I want, meaning the designer of the game, is for them to set their place in the world. Sword and sorcery adventurers like to adventure, right? They like to see different things. Uh, they might have a little bit of wanderlust, but in the end, they want stuff, right? And you could, you know, give XP for treasure, and that might work out pretty well. But I also decided that I wanted a system where the players could both gain and lose status. Because again, that's a pretty common trope in these sword and sorcery games. You've got your, your you know, hero working as the captain of the guard or, you know, living in luxury because they, they did an adventure and they've got a pocket full of jewels and gold. And then the next story is they're, you know, in the desert, you know, working for a small, you know, small uh, caravan guarding them because they got, they lost their position one way or the other. In order to mimic this type of storytelling and also make it so that the players understand this is the game, I set up the status system, right? So with the status system, instead of you being rewarded once you've gained a certain amount of experience points with stuff, you gain your status by having the stuff. And if you lose the stuff, you lose the status. And because of this, I didn't want to tie the status to any kind of combat abilities or spells or anything like that. You know, not that spells are something that's really relevant, but what I wanted it to be was to reflect what is often the goal of sword and sorcery heroes, which is to gain following of warriors, to gain, you know, weapons, to gain basically, basically martial power. Um, so what I'm looking at here is a system that you, you come into it, you're already a good fighter, you're as good as you're ever going to be, right? What will make you a better fighter is to have the tools of a warrior. The tools of the warrior are weapons, armor, horses, and henchmen. By gaining those things, you become more powerful in the world. You also, you know, just as a warrior in general, and you also gain the, the, the stature, which of course is like your plot armor. This is much different than in the OD&D hack that I'm doing, which you will gain primarily your experience points through exploration and recovery of treasure. Though I will point out that OD&D by the Three Brown Books versus Greyhawk After gives much more experience points for slaying monsters. So you could very easily do a monster slaying OD&D game and do all right. So that's it, right? That's what I'm looking at. So I'm curious what you guys think. If, if you take this into consideration when you're choosing games to play or if you um, change experience points or any kind of other rewards that you might give out to help shape the process of the players, obviously they'll do what they want, right? If somebody wants to play this sword and sorcery game and just walk around in the loincloth and the dagger and never pick up any kind of followers and never get any weapons or any armor, they're more than welcome to do that. But they'll remain a freebooter. And if the time comes that they are, you know, beaten or defeated, their story will go on the wind and nobody will remember them. Unlike Conan, who everyone will remember, right? And that's basically it, right? That's what you're what you're going for. You're going for a legacy. You're going for survival. And by accumulating the things you need to accumulate, you will gain that. So like I said, let me know what you guys think about that. If that makes sense to you, let's get the conversation going. Okay, so we've got an unboxing here. 
All right, well, I can't lie to y'all. I actually already opened this box up and recorded an unboxing, but screwed up the audio. So I'm going to fake it. Uh, but so just so it feels like it's real, I have my Swiss Army knife here, just in case. And um, this is a package from Big Nerd Coffee. So a friend of mine who I've gamed with for years, Morgan, uh, has a coffee shop in upstate New York. And also uh, has started recently, I mean, recently in the last few years, uh, distributing coffee is like his own blends and stuff. And uh, yeah, it, it's really good. When we went to Gen Con together, he brought, he made a special blend just for Gen Con. It was really cool. But now um, I'll, I'll put a link to this in the, in the show notes, but uh, he's doing these boxes. I think this is the third one he's done. Um, they combine special blends of coffee with uh, an adventure. Um, so it's pretty cool. Uh, I actually play tested the adventure, so I know the adventure is pretty cool. It's, it's called, um, uh, let's see, let me get everything out here. So let me, let me start as an unboxing first. All right. So I'm opening the box and I can see in here, there's a bunch of different things before I get ahead of myself. Um, we'll do the easy stuff first and I'll get into the adventure. So basically you've got your coffee. Um, this is the never sleep again, uh, version of the coffee, which is the name of the adventure. It's a Halloween or scary adventure. Oh, it smells good. Okay. You've also got Death by Chocolate, which is also coffee. Also smells good. And then these uh, included some tea as well. Fred's Dream Herb. I got cut off there. <laughs> uh, so just in case, like me, um, you do not have a means to, you know, uh, use regular tea leaves or whatever. Um, they also included one of these little, uh, diffusers, you know, it's like a little ball with net on it and you fill it up with your tea leaves and, uh, soak it in hot water or whatever. And that's how you make your tea. Very cool. And two sets of dice. Uh, they look like they are full sets. Um, you know, D4, uh, D6, D8, uh, D10 percentile, 12 and 20, two sets. They are white and they look like they are splattered with blood um one set anyways and the other set looks like they are kind of have some rainbow color and blood so pretty cool um did i make these like kind of interesting test tube things that's kind of nice um all right put those off to the side so dice are always good to have okay and there's also a t-shirt in here and it is kind of an olive green and it's got uh never sleep again with the logo and stuff on the front, pretty cool. Um, and in addition, there's also a, um, like a piece of like a, the, the sacks that you see coffee beans come in, you know, they're kind of like a burlap, I guess. Um, and it's a chunk of that cut off. It's maybe uh, 18 inches by a foot. And it looks like it's screen printed on it is that same uh, Never Sleep Again logo. So that's kind of fun. Put that back in the box, in my shirt. Um, okay, so that's, I mean, depending on your preference, right, that, that might be, the coffee might be the meat of the box, right, but let's get into the adventure, because I think that's what makes this unique. I mean, there's other, uh, you know, obviously other coffee houses that do, um, you know, that do custom boxes with coffee, but I like how he combines it with an adventure. So this Never Sleep Again adventure, it's kind of a, um, it's based on, like, 80 slasher films, so if you're into that kind of stuff, it's really kind of fun. Um, when we play tested it, they didn't have like the, the system figured out yet. I guess it's going to be, 
it's using like a D20 system, kind of like a, it says 5e compatible, but it's got its own classes and stuff. So um, it's not really like you're playing 5e. It just uses, you know, it's just basically a D20 system. Um, but essentially you are a group of teenagers whose parents had done something bad to a bad person who has come back now um, in a the form of a video game machine in the arcade. And uh, yeah, all hell is broken loose. So you've got your module itself. It is uh, hand like hand sewn with like little uh, yeah like uh, looks like wax uh, wax string. It's got kind of like a well translucent uh, cover with uh, piano notes on it, and then the name of the module is handwritten on it. Uh, it looks like with almost like a uh, highlighter marker, and then inside you've got what you know as I said hands. So it's basically a you know, letter size paper folded in half. Um, you've got a map in the center. Uh, looks like it's 19 pages, if I'm reading this right. Um, well, the 19 pages of content plus the title page, you know, this map inside. Uh, okay. And of course, there's also like a cardboardy cover on it as well. It's purple and has that same kind of almost Freddy Krueger uh, glove with knives on it. Um, there's some notes here for the Dungeon Master. There's a uh, an OSR conversion uh, sheet, and then you've got some pre-gens, the cheerleader, the nerd, the jock, um, the bad boy. So when I play tested this, I did it in Cthulhu Dark, which is like a really simple OSR game. And um, it's a pretty cool game. I don't know if I'd recommend it for this module. <laughs> I think the 5e probably would have worked better because um, we really had to make a bunch of stuff up. So I, while I think Cthulhu Dark is decent, I would not use that for this. Okay, but... What's actually even more interesting, well, maybe not more interesting, but also additionally interesting, is there was a couple of little things in here that I did not expect. There is a six-inch ruler that says, a good rule for fun. Let's go skating. Joy Crest Skating Rink. And then there's a little button in here, like a button, like a pin button, and it says, Teen Agogo Joy Crest. And there's a little kind of uh, greenish colored paper uh, flyer in here, if you will. It's like a little uh, pamphlet, and it's got little uh, rink notes. Patty Richardson asks Clarine for fast numbers to skate to, but with her long, full skirt, she is a bit handicapped. I don't know if you use that word anymore. This is marked from April 11th, 1948. Now, when I saw this stuff at first, I was like, oh, cool. They found some prop from some like fun little props just to throw in here. But then I was like, that doesn't really make sense because the thing play takes place in the 80s. But then I saw a little note and I will read it to you, um, which I think is really cool. Thank you for supporting our September, October, Never Sleep Again crate. Inside the box, you will find all sorts of fun little things. A couple things to note, however, are the oddities from Joycast Skating Rink. This roller rink featured within the pages of the NSA Adventure is the same location where these coffee beans were roasted. Our roasting facility lies in the basement of this former Freemason's Lodge turned performance hall, turned skating rink, turned pickleball arena. I'd love to know what pickleball is. It doubles as both roller rink and pickleball arena these days, so I guess I can go there and find out. Inside, you'll find a novelty ruler and a teen go-go pin, both from 1951, and an issue of Joycrest Funcrest newsletter dates vary. While this has nothing to do with the actual theme of the crate, we felt there were fun inclusions to give you a look back at the history 65 plus years ago when roller rinks were the highlight of society. Prior to that, it was also known as 
the Cashmere Grotto. Thank you again for your support. Enjoy the coffee and the loot, Morgan. So that's pretty neat, you know. This is one of those things that, that you get when you uh, buy from or work with, uh, you know, smaller vendors, right? You're not going to get uh, in a crate from uh, one of the larger, uh, you know, Wizards of the Coast. You're not going to get a Wizards of the Coast crate that's going to have some cool artifacts from where the uh, their their current warehouses or whatever. It's just not the kind of thing you get. So it's one of the reasons why I like to support um, small businesses, especially since I am a small business. But yeah, you know, I think it's really great. So I'll put the information in there. Um, as noted, while I haven't tried this coffee yet, I have had this coffee in the past and it is very good. So the adventure is also good. I will, not by the time this goes out, but I'm going to send him a message and see if it's okay because we did record the playtest for this adventure. So if it's okay with them, I'm going to make it public. Um, so if people are interested, probably in the next podcast, I'll put it in the show notes or I'll come back and put it here. I'm not sure. Um, in any case, uh, there's my quasi unboxing, but I definitely wanted to to go through this crate, even though it's not a true unboxing. Of course, it's a game. That's why in my first post, which maybe I failed to post or maybe you missed, I pointed out the fact that you should select the type of initiative you use primarily based on what helps the game flow the best. But then I went on to talk about what initiative represents in the real world. And finally, with the fact that since this is actually a role-playing game, that we should role-play initiative. And in fact, we should role-play combat a lot more than we do. The point about fast, medium, and slow categories is that they are flexible and you can adjust them based on the situation. And the situation should be based on what role-playing is going on. That way, you get the best of both worlds. You have a certain amount of structure that you can use to actually determine what's happening and how it's affecting the characters. But you have a situation where you prioritize the role-playing. And that's what I don't see in any of the live plays I've ever listened to. The role-playing stops when combat starts. I mean, I think I understand what you're getting at, but I just feel like you use words in a way that I don't use them. Like, we're using the same word, but we're not using them the same way. You know, I think you, because before we talked about you didn't like when people had conversations in character. That wasn't role-play. And now you're saying rolling dice in combat and saying what your character is doing isn't role play. Uh, I don't really know what role play is to you. Is it describing in detail the exact moves during combat that somebody makes? If it is, that has no interest to me. So I would definitely not do that. And I agree, I don't do that at all. I do often have conversations during combat if the, they're fighting intelligent creatures. Just last week, the enemy essentially grabbed one of the players and held, well, they were unconscious, so I don't know if hostage is the right word, but grabbed one of the players and put a dagger to their throat to get the other player to surrender. That's role play to me. I don't know uh, why that wouldn't be role play to you, but, you know, again, teach their own. Um, But I will say that I don't have a problem with combat not being about role play and combat being its own game, and I've actually podcasted about that. I think combat is its own thing, and 
the idea of immersion to me is just not even uh, a true con at least in my role maybe maybe i'm not playing the right games but i am never immersed in the game i never feel like i'm 100 percent in the game and that combat changes that for me i always know as a person that i am playing the game so i'm never immersed in it in that sense so switching up to a different system you know uh, of combat you know rolling dice or whatever and just describing what your character's doing i'm shooting an arrow at the orcs i mean that's as much role play as anything else as you need in combat that being said again if you have a different way of doing it i would love to i'd love to for you to demonstrate it because it sounds to me like you keep saying things and i see no demonstration so if you want to put together a live play and show us how role playing and combat should to use your word be done go ahead and do it i'll definitely watch it hey daniel jason here um i i think it's interesting that you can adapt OD&D to just about any genre, you know, as I found out with horror, it would be really easy to do that and match what appears to be one of the better horror ones for simulate, at least for simulating movies, right? Um, and then for other games, like I found a really good hack, Old West hack for OD&D on the OD&D 74 forums for people that, you know, still use those icky internet forums. So, I mean, definitely there's stuff out there. But does it make sense to use that instead of just picking up Boot Hill or to adapt OD&D to Spies instead of just picking up Top Secret? You know, probably not. I don't know. I, I think there's room to have different games out there without a doubt. But I do think it's interesting and it shows the versatility of the rules that you can adapt it. And I think that speaks to the strength of the rules that you can adapt it across the board. Yeah, I think you're making a really good point. And you know, it's interesting, right? When you're when you're talking about uh, you know adapting a game system. So if I was going to run a campaign, or even a short campaign, three, four, five sessions um, with a concept, and I was going to write it out and do something like that, um, in let's say a western, I definitely would go to like Boot Hill, or well, I would probably go to Boot Hill because I love it. Although I really want to run Dogs in the Vineyards, but anyways, um, because that system has the things in it that I need, uh, you know more readily available right it's already taken into account all the the other things about being a western besides just the combat system so i think that because i'm doing something more involved i would want to do that now the other thing too would be if it was going to be a really long campaign and i and i knew my players were into it and we were definitely going to do it then i might say okay i'm going to sit down and, and do what we talked about like basically create the equivalent of the three little brown books for westerns and then use chainmail, but I think that would be after I ran a, a few kind of shorter campaigns in Boot Hill um, to make sure the, part, the the players loved it because I'd hate to write an entire game system and have nobody want to play it. But anyways, uh, losing my track there, track my thoughts. But what I was going to say was, but if it was like a one shot and nobody at the table had really played Boot Hill much. And we were playing OD&D with Chainmail, or we were playing Hateful Place, which is, it makes me think of that. Like we ran, I know Nikki just released her podcast. We ran all kinds of genres. In fact, one of the first Hateful Places I ran was a Western. And um, a game that is so simple in mechanics and so elegant that you can adapt to almost anything is great for exactly those reasons. You want to be like, oh, you know what? I have a single idea for an adventure that's probably one session, maybe two. I don't want to go into a more complex system about Westerns because I don't really care about, you know, 
kettle rustling and everything else. This is very specifically going to be, you know, a gunfight or whatever it's going to be. And I'm going to create this, uh, this scenario, which is, is essentially maybe just kind of like a, a large encounter, if you want to look at it like that. Then I think these versatile games are great. I mean, I could see picking up OD&D and running almost anything, you know, um, if for a one-shot or a two-shot. If I was going to go deeper into it, I might lean towards a system that already exists just because it has all the, the peripheral information, right? It has the spaceships or the, the rules for wagon trains and those kind of things. So that, that's the only reason why I would say that a do-it-all system might not be the, the ideal. But I do believe that the chainmail combat system could be tagged into a lot of systems and really, uh, I'm going to actually use the word improve. I hate, I hate to do that because I think the system's really good, but I think it adds something. It adds something very strong. And, you know, I think that uh, like oh, people are putting out supplements because apparently this is the trend now that, that people want to play like larger scale uh, war game stuff connected to fifth edition. I mean, I think you could have just went back for five bucks, picked up Chainmail, and just used Chainmail to run the 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 war battles in fifth edition. You know, I don't think you needed or need massive three hundred page rule books to run these things. Simple, elegant rules are really what works, at least in my mind, for that kind of stuff. The other interesting thing I wanted to comment for the end of your podcast, where you were talking about we talked about magic swords, and and I agree with you. You're right. If you're playing a game. The chances of getting to where all these swords are in play is going to be pretty small, unless you're playing years-long campaign or you're um, playing a, a world where you've got a bunch of different parties adventuring in the same world, that kind of thing. But I and I agree with you. The chances are you're going to have a lot more plus one swords in the world than special swords, and that would be more the glut problem. But it reminded me of a really neat. Um, comic book graphic novel that's been adapted to a role-playing game called The Sixth Gun. So in The Sixth Gun, like I say, it's a comic book, you can find it. It's actually, if you have Kindle Unlimited, all six volumes of the deluxe, so all the comics are available in Kindle Unlimited, so you can read it that way. And there's a Savage Worlds game based on it where they, you know, adapted the setting. And it's really cool, and I don't want to give it away because, you know, it is easily accessible. And if you really want spoilers, you can just read the Wikipedia page. But effectively, you have these six guns. And they're, they're in the game is set after the Civil War, so they're in the form of revolvers, right? So they're these six revolvers that are magical artifacts that obviously have long-term implications. But once a welder picks one up, it, it, it adapts to that owner, and nobody else can use it until that owner is killed or gives it up. And these six guns have existed for a really long time. So before guns were around, there were like six long swords, right? But these six artifacts have been around forever. And so the books, of course, are about different forces vying to get control of these six artifacts because of the powers they have. And that kind of goes into what you're talking about with the idea of games. And it makes sense, right? In a world with magical artifacts, you would have kingdoms going to war over these artifacts and trying to get control of them. Now, the fact that... These artifacts, in like the swords, have egos, which kind of the guns do too in the game. And if I remember, it's been a while since I read the the comics, but anyway, but you know the idea, of the ego, of the swords definitely plays into it. But that still wouldn't keep a kingdom from trying to get them all, and potentially, you know, some kings or magic users from trying to collect all the magic swords they can, even if they can't use them 
and just locking them up in a vault so nobody else can use them, right? So you could definitely have a really neat campaign just built around magic swords. And then, of course, your characters get sucked in when they find swords that other people didn't know were out there. You know, so it's effectively your Lord of the Rings thing. You, you know, the, the One Ring had been forgotten, and then a nobody found it, and then gets sucked into all this. Well, you could definitely do that with your characters with magic swords, and, and then they get sucked into this bigger realm. And then, you know, so I think there's a lot to that. And I think that's interesting. And I think I would definitely adopt some of that if I do get around to running OSR into that. Maybe not run that campaign, but adopt the, these ideas with the magic swords. Although maybe not with the elf souls in there, you know. Because um, there are probably cruncher ways to, to dispose of elf souls and shoving them in the swords. But... I, I definitely think that's a cool idea, and if I ever get a chance to play in your game, I, I definitely would love to. But I will talk to you later. Take care, and yeah. Oh yeah, that that sounds very cool. That uh, that comic, I'll have to look to see. I, I I'm part of uh, like a comic, uh, like I have an app. I guess I'm not part of anything. I'm, I have an app where you can download comics and you pay for them or whatever. So I have to see. I don't have Kindle Unlimited. It. But that does sound really cool. And I like the idea that the artifacts change over time because you could actually have like a, a, a spanning campaign where you played in different genres, especially since we're talking about how OD&D is so versatile, right? You could basically create characters, you know, start in like, you know, the Middle Ages and then work your way up and play them through all the ways up until like modern times, having the artifacts change where the, the families of the, the play, it's like something you pass down through the family, right? Like the, is it the, the Phantom or the Shadow that's... I can't remember which superhero is that, or it's passed down, right? But they, people believe it's the same person, but it's just their family. But yeah, I think there's lots and lots of ways that we can use the magic swords and the potential glut of magic swords to our advantage. You know, maybe they get retired after a while. Maybe a sword wants to go back to its homeland. You know, maybe it decides it's done what it needs to do, and it, it requests that you bring it back to Elfland, and it gets returned. Maybe, you know, you made me think about the magic user collecting it. Maybe... The, somehow human magic users have, have figured out a way or a human magic user has figured out a way to uh, to draw the elf's life essence from the swords so they're using it to sustain their life and now you have this thousand year old you know human who, who of course is deeply evil and uh, you know doesn't care about any living being and is literally just robbing souls from the elves so they can sustain themselves and live longer so I think there's lots and lots of cool campaign ideas uh, to add the swords in for sure so and yeah, and I mean, I will be doing some, I'm planning on trying to do a kind of West Marches-ish style uh, game coming up soon. So I will definitely let you know um, when that begins and we'll get some people involved. I'm not sure if I'm going to go straight up OD&D chainmail or if I'm going to do the chainmail sword and sorcery. Um, maybe both. Who knows? Okay, that's it for me today. Um, yeah, I don't, what do you guys think? Leave me some messages about the things we've talked about here, but also I'm curious about this role-playing during combat thing. It doesn't have anything to do with the chainmail uh, conversion, which I'm kind of trying to focus on, but I am curious. Maybe I'm just being a little thick here, but what do you think about role-play during combat and immersion and those kind of things? Let me know. And of course, about character advancement and anything else I've talked about here, feel free to call in. I always like to hear from you.